0: Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of the Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Steelhead Alley OG, Jeff Blood. We take a deep dive into all things Steelhead Alley, the fishery, the gear, the tactics, and everything in between. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And as we continue to create and distribute more diverse content, you may want to consider downloading our iOS or Android app. We organize our content by category so you can go straight to the content that interests you the most. The apps are free and the links are in the show notes. Alternatively, just search the Articulate Fly where you get your mobile apps. Now, on to the interview. Well, Jeff, welcome to the Articulate Fly.
1: Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm uh, glad to catch up with you and talk again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's um, I don't know that we either of us want to confess how long it's been since we met each other.
1: Well, it's it's been a while back. Uh, we were on Cattaraugus Creek. I remember watching you and a couple of your fishing buddies. That's uh, a lot of fish.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, big steelhead. Yeah, I, me- I remember that. I also remember skating around a fair amount on that shale, too, because I didn't have studs in my boots. Lesson learned, right? It, yeah, I've, I've got plenty of <laughs> screws in my box now.
1: <laughs> yeah, we all do. Yeah. It's on my head, too, though.
0: Yeah, there okay. you go. Well, <laughs> well, you know, Jeff, we have a tradition on the articulate fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory.
1: Yeah, so mine is very clear. Um, I grew up in Erie County on a little farm pond that was dug along Interstate 90 when they were building the highway. They used the dirt to build the pond. And it was stocked with bluegill, bass, bullheads. And my older brother, who was 15 years older than me, bought me a uh, Mm -hmm. casting rod. It was a a new fiberglass with a multi really bright colors, if you remember those. And my brother, two years older than me, was also fishing with a new rod. He was catching bluegills one after another. I couldn't catch them. And I finally hooked one that was a huge three and a half inches. And rather than crank, I decided to sprint backwards and drag it out of the bank. And I'm going to make a comment about that, that I was so thrilled to catch that fish and, uh, you know, 62 years later, cause I'm 66 now, I still have that same enthusiasm as the first time I caught that little bluegill. So that's my memory.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And, uh, when did you come to the dark side of fly fishing?
1: <laughs> well, you know, uh, I had four older brothers. They, uh, three of them were 10 years and older than me. So by the time I was old enough to fish, they were all driving. And the great thing about that is they loved to hunt and fish. So I got to, to go lots of places, you know, locally, trout fishing and, you know, bow and arrow fishing for carp and all that type of thing. Uh, my oldest brother had a fly rod. That's how he preferred to fish. Tied a few flies, you know, uh, was okay at it, but that's how he wanted to fish. So I would uh, sneak his rod out during the day while he was at work and uh, catch bluegills and whatever. But I would always get my spinning rod out to fish for bass and so on and so forth. At the age of 18, um, I just put my spinning rod away. I had built my own fly rod and never looked back. Um, you know, if you lay rods down and say, you know, pick one of the rods you want to fish, no matter where I'm at in the world, I'm going to pick up the fly rod. That's what I love to do.
0: Yeah, that's pretty neat. And back then, it was no small feat to build your own ride.
1: <laughs> it was—it actually was a huge mountain just to buy hooks. <laughs> People don't realize uh, what we didn't have back then or access to. Growing up where I grew up, I don't think there was a fly shop within 100 miles or maybe even more. And uh, the herders catalog, if you remember herders, they were out in uh, South Dakota um, was was like uh, you know the candy store of all things, and I would go in there and you know, have my wish list, and uh, but never enough money to buy you know what I needed. So it was a, a long, slow process developing as a fly fisherman. Um, but you know that was part of the intrigue.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that, because, I mean, you know, for all of us that kind of came of age before the Internet, you know, and also, too, quite honestly, I mean, everyone having a credit card is a relatively recent phenomenon. And so, you know, I can just remember, like, asking my mom to write checks for very small amounts of money to mail somewhere to get something.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's the way it was back then. You know, the beauty of the Internet today is the younger guys can teach themselves or watch a video, learn how to tie a fly. You know, we had to try to read a book. In most cases, we couldn't. We had to, like, buy a fly in, in a shop somewhere and bring it home and kind of deconstruct it to figure out what it is. So, um, <clears throat> you know, that's that's the benefit of the Internet today
0: yeah absolutely and so you know obviously you've been in the sport for quite a while who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what have they taught you
1: well you know that that list is pretty extensive uh the pinnacle of that would be lefty cray um i think lots of people in the industry can say that about lefty i had the good fortune of meeting lefty in 1978 at an event um West of Pittsburgh, where I live, and uh, about an hour's drive, maybe a little longer, Lefty was there doing his typical casting demonstration. And I happened to be there with a friend of mine who owned the local fly shop at the time. And uh, when we got back, he said, You know, I'm going to call Lefty up and see if he will come and help us with our schools. And uh, he did. And then I was, um, you know, tagging along as as a quasi-instructor. At the time, you know, I was a high-end intermediate, but but there were very few experts uh, that we knew. We brought Lefty in, and, uh, you know, Lefty, you know, immediately just uh, caused me to be awestruck in terms of his knowledge and so on and so forth. Taught me a lot about casting, um, but lots of other things. Lefty was, uh, you know, the pinnacle of our industry. The one thing he left with me that I think is most important and touched my life from my youth was uh, he said to me one day that excellence whispers, and what he was really saying is, is that people don't need to be arrogant and toot their own horn if you're really good at something, it'll just show that you're good by doing what you do. And so it's more a philosophical thing. The other thing that he taught me was to look deeper, uh, you know, investigate, not to be shallow, one-dimensional in my thinking, but to think beyond just the obvious. So I, you know, put him there. But then um, as far as the, You know, that's more the philosophical aspect of it. But a lot of the guides on the Bighorn River, um, I fished the Bighorn River the first time in 1982 and then went back out and we fished it uh, with a guide out of George Anderson's Fly Shop because there were no fly shops in the area. I think the Bighorn Trout Shop opened up in 1985 and then Mike Craig's Place uh, shortly after but I ended up guiding the river with Mike Craig, uh, Jim Lowry, a guy they called Stretch, Brad Downey, and uh, Clint Horsley. And between them, the collective knowledge of um, leader design, casting, fly tying, all those—you um, you, know—indicator fishing. To that point, I had never indicator fished, and. um, you know, length of rod, they were fishing 10-foot rods before it was even acceptable to fish 10-foot rods. And they all shared that information with me. And, of course, when you go out there, you do that, you bring it back with you. And then when you start having success, your friends around you start saying, hey, what are you doing? And you share it with them. And that's kind of the, the viral or contagious aspect of, of learning in the market.
0: Yeah, that's interesting too because I mean the the Bighorn is a great uh, classroom because it will absolutely humble you. It certainly humbled me many
1: times. (laughs) Well, I just came off the Bighorn uh, last, what what did we fish? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, It was as good as I've ever seen it. The fish are extremely healthy. They're 17 to 20 inches. They're fat. They're strong. You can't fish below 4x you really need to be fishing 3x the problem is you also have to fish size 20s and quite frankly you can't thread the 3x to the size 20 (laughs) islet and so you had to go to 4x and and we hooked a lot of fish we just didn't land that many
0: (laughs) yeah very neat yeah the last time i was there uh we stayed at cottonwood camp and it was when they were still working on the dam so the uh you could do that first uh, float in probably uh, 30 or 45 minutes if you didn't get out and wait a little bit.
1: Yeah. Well, that was what, three years ago they were working on the dam. They had it kind of messed up at the time. Uh, the trico hatch was really good because I fished it then also. But once the trico hatch is over, I mean, the river was dead and I've never seen it that way. Uh, I fished it almost every year for 25 years. And then I took about 10 years off. And then, because uh, the, the river went through, a, you know, kind of a downturn. And then they came back. And then, so I decided to go out and fish. And uh, <clears throat> never have I seen it that you can't put on a San Juan worm or a scud and catch fish. And you just couldn't. Um, nobody. I mean, it, it's one thing that's not me doing it or, you know, my boat but uh, there was nobody catching fish and nothing below three miles. So that that's just, you know, when they've got to do what they have to to take care of the dam, it is what it is, and that's part of fishing, you know.
0: Yeah, I think that's the great life lesson is you you can only take what the river's willing to give you, right?
1: <laughs> yep, that's, that's what you do. <laughs> it,
0: it, and so kind of coming back to the East Coast, you know, you know you've been really – fishing steelhead alley from the beginning and you know for those of us that don't really know what it was like before um there was an aggressive introduction of steelhead into the great lakes why don't you let folks know a little bit about the creation of the fishery and kind of how it's evolved over the years
1: yeah so sometime in the 50s i was born in 1954 um there was an article written called steelhead alley i think it was in the field and stream my all of my older brothers talked about the article, they called it Steelhead Alley. In Pennsylvania, you were not allowed to fish in the streams until the first day of trout season, which was always the second Saturday. So if you know anything about Steelhead, they're mostly running prior to that. So anything that was being caught was actually on the tail end of the run. And that's just the point I wanna to make to people because the fish were running sooner and some were spawning and going out and never really um, able to be fished to and i caught my first fish uh what we call lake run rainbows back then or lakers is what the local people called them Uh, not lake trout which are known as lakers with you know lake run and i was seven years old I actually was across from what they call Uncle John's campground today. But on the first day, they would stock trout uh, you know, by the bridges. So take a bunch of buckets, walk down, dump them by the bridges. And my brother, two years older than me and myself, we couldn't get in where the fish were stocked because all the adults had it all blocked out. So we walked downstream, found a big bunch of suckers, and we didn't care. And we're fishing the suckers, and I actually caught a twenty-four inch lake run rainbow at the age of seven. I caught it on a Zebco two hundred two on a fiberglass rod, um, and you know that I was the hero because I had this great big huge fish, and all these guys are catching these nine to twelve inch fish. <laughs> so you know it was it was I was I was the big stud of the day, you know. But from there, uh, we started fishing trout run, you were allowed to fish this little tiny, I'll call it a a spring-fed stream, not very big, you could almost jump across it, but it had natural reproduction in it, and so uh, we would go there again in April, and sometimes in May, and we would fish, and you could see the fish, you know, they're 30 inches long in a little tiny stream, but the, the fishery basically was made up of those fish that survived from the stocking in Crooked Creek and in Elk Creek. And those are the only streams I know of that were in Pennsylvania, uh, that that ran directly into the stream in Pennsylvania that were stocked. And then some of the natural reproduction in those small little niche areas like Trout Run, there's a, a little stream called Chiller Creek up off from the West branch of Conia Creek that has natural reproduction. And then I think, uh, Creek, I'm sorry. Yeah. Cattaraugus Creek definitely had natural reproduction, but not enough to really build a fishery. You know, it was just remnants. Um, and then a guy by the name of Bob Het, um, he, if you go up there and fish and you see all those, um, we're going to say shrubs that, that they're raising to sell to, you know, to people. He, he, uh, he owns all that stuff. And he went to the West coast and brought, um, genetically pure steelhead eggs back here, propagated them, stocked them and had a phenomenal return of, of steelhead. And the fish commission at the time was stocking coho salmon, there was some decision made to quit stocking coho and start stocking steelhead only. And they switched over to that. And I don't know when that was. It was in the eighties. Um, I'm going to say like mid eighties and the runs back then were phenomenal. The, the crazy thing is through the eighties and early nineties, I fished in the fall. Most of the fish ran in November. They, so, so right now, we have a ton of fish in the system. I mean, right now. There are hundreds of fish in every pool. Uh, no water. Uh, you know, when we get the first rain, they're going to get rain tomorrow, I guess. They should just tear them up. But they're running earlier and earlier. Um, now, I think that's by design from the Fish Commission so that people can fish for them in better weather. The concern I have is, can they sustain the run though for a long period of time, uh, so that you know you can fish in November and December like we traditionally did? But that's that's what went on in the time I would fish. Like the first day of deer season is always in Pennsylvania is always um, after Thanksgiving, so I would go up on Friday after Thanksgiving and I would fish. And literally, have the stream to myself, and you know. Each pool has 30 to 50 fish in it. So you'd go in and catch, you know, 8, 9, 10 fish out of one pool and walk down to the next and down to the next. Well, it's, you still catch a lot of fish today, but it's just different because there are a lot of people fishing. It literally is a world-class fishery. It's sometimes taken for granted because to catch the size of fish and as many fish as we catch we would probably have to spend a minimum of $5,000 going to the West Coast and to Alaska. And you're not going to catch them on the West Coast unless you go into BC or Alaska in the numbers that we're catching them.
0: Yeah, and so I know you've got a fall run. Do you also have a spring run like they do on the other side of the Great Lakes?
1: Well, we do. Uh, What I've noticed over my fishing uh, time is that Pennsylvania does not have a very strong spring run. They do get some spring fish, but nothing compared to what Ohio gets. This last year in Ohio was epic. I mean, I, I, uh, 50 fish hookups were easy. Now I'm not saying 50 landed fish because they were, they were big and there was a lot of wood in the river, but uh, 50 fish was easy. Um, Uh, a bunch of days and like the Grand River cooperated this year. Um, They didn't have a ton of rain, which normally blows that river out forever. And uh, I mean, I've seen periods where it doesn't get fished for three months because you can't get on it. Uh, But all the other systems also had fish. Um, You know, they've got, I think, seven to eight big systems. And actually the better water is in Ohio, with the exception of the Cattaraugus in New York State, Pennsylvania has small streams with lots of fish in them, but they're small. And Ohio's got much more room. They've done a really good job with public access. I mean, just a great job. Like uh, the Ashtabula River, and my understanding of the Ashtabula, the native tongue means river of many fish they are not they've they cleaned it up uh it had some chemicals in the in the lower portion they've cleaned that up they're now stocking it it was full of fish last year or last spring and same with cognac creek Cogn- cognac creek is is historically my most favorite stream to fish for steelhead and i fish it both in pennsylvania and in ohio because it it's uh Originates in the town of Dixonburg in Pennsylvania and flows north and then cuts uh, west and goes into Ohio. And, um, you know, it's a great fishery. Uh, it's, I would advocate to people if they want to do some great spring steelhead fishing that, to go into Ohio.
0: Yeah. And in, and in terms of are there differences uh, kind of around the Great Lakes, say, you know, the Pennsylvania, Ohio steelhead? Uh, versus uh, Steelhead in Michigan and other parts of the Great Lakes, or are they all uh, behave pretty much the same?
1: Well, that's that's controversial, I guess. You know, way back uh, when this program first started, and, and I mean it caught on. They they being the Fish Commission as well as some independent um, organizations brought various streams of uh, West Coast steelhead and so they had pure strains of the skimania as an example which is a long slender fish it's a summer run fish uh, uh, in indiana that that's their targeted fish is the skimania it's very aerodynamic um it'll jump you know as many as 10 or 12 times and um you know they had the uh, the uh, what they call the new London strain in Ohio, and then the Manatee strain from Michigan. But I think what they've done is they've mongrelized all of those fish, um, <clears throat> and now they have a strain in Pennsylvania they call the Trout Run strain because Trout Run is where the uh, fish cultural station is that raises the the small fish and. Um yeah, it's almost shameful in one sense that they didn't try to keep them pure. I, I think there's a little bit of it going on across the lake because that's all natural reproduction. And it only makes sense that if a certain fish runs with another fish that they match up and, and spawn, which is the concern I have. that our, our fish here are spawning earlier and earlier and earlier. And you know we, we've got lots of fish right now when we have lots of fish it's tremendous but you know there's a big harvest that goes on um, and lots of people like to keep them for their eggs or keep them to, to eat or smoke and uh, you know if you don't have more fish backfilling then the quality of the fish fishing goes down because the numbers go down and um, whereas, In Ohio, they're, they're getting more of a spring run. They do get a fall run, but they get more of a spring run of fish over there. So, you know, I switched from Pennsylvania and New York in the fall and go mostly to Ohio. Now, now, Conyac Creek has both because Pennsylvania stocks on a road called Beaver Center Blacktop in the West Branch. And I think they put, they put at least 50, no, I'm, I can't remember the number. It's over 50,000, and it could be as high as 75,000. And then Ohio stocks their strain of fish, which they get or have been getting. I don't know what's going on currently. Fish from um, Michigan. So it's that Manistee strain, uh, which is a, a fall run fish. So and the Manistees have a tendency to run later, like November, Um and versus the ta fish so they're trying to increase getting a slug of all of them and um you know so you just need to know that to know when and where to go i guess
0: yeah that's interesting and you know you were talking earlier about um i guess trying to match up uh you know how many fish they're putting in versus how many uh, fish people are harvesting but you know I know there have been some environmental and ecological challenges uh, in Steelhead Alley. You know, what are we looking at today?
1: Well, it, you know, um, we always want to think that invasive species are bad. I'm going to make a comment somewhere throughout history, everything's been invasive, <laughs> you know, and uh, the question becomes, is it good or bad? So when I was, you know, say six, eight, ten years old. My grandmother had a cottage right on the shore of the lake, and if you got a northeast wind, you know that turns the lake up really bad. And then when that settles out, you know the lake turns back to nor normally uh, wind either out of the south or out of the west, and yet you have it, your lake clears up. But there would be this pasty—I don't even know how to explain it—muck. Uh, for about anywhere between 20 to 40 feet from the beach that you would have to wade through, and it would be like putting Vaseline on your body. It was grayish green made up of, I don't know what, dead seaweed and who knows. And it was awful. And today, the lake is as clean as you can have a a lake be. Um, you can see down to the bottom in 20 feet of water easily. Uh, the, the zebra mussel, I think is what has done that in the sense of, uh, you know, they're, they're a filter and they filter all that out and help clean it up. The other thing that's occurred is there's been an explosion in bait and the amount of bait that is in the lake is mind boggling. I mean, you'll, I've, I've been out, uh, with a couple of charter guys, uh, you know, I, I don't really prefer to troll for anything. It just is, is, you know, the skill is in the captain and cranking in a walleye is like cranking in a shoe, but they eat well. Um, anyway, the, the, um, fish finder would, you know, we'd go over a school of bait and it might be three quarters of a mile long. And you just you just keep going and you can't get out of it to the point where your lines, you can see that they're hitting the bait when you're bringing the lines through the, the bait. So that's really good because there's a lot of food out there. Even though they estimate now there's 150 million walleye in the lake. Last year, they estimated 60 million. And the year before that was, you know, 30 or 40 million which is still a lot of fish and it just keeps getting bigger on the walleye. And, you know, that's one of the things that they want to blame the reduced numbers that we've had in the past on um, predation to the smolts, And I would say, okay, you know, I can buy that, but um, I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's something that's going on in the stocking program. And, uh, you know, the question I would have is if you and I ran this as a business, we would look to ourselves first and say, what are we doing or what have we changed? And if we haven't done anything or changed anything, then we got to look outward. Right. And going back to when they started stocking upstream, um, 18.5 or six miles on Elk Creek and they're dumping in almost 400,000 fish by the way, all in pretty much the same spot, which is kind of stupid. Uh, and I think there was just a lot of mortality with them, with the time of year they were stocking, and so on and so forth. And what that did is, the reason they did it, let me back up, was to try to keep the Pennsylvania fish from straying out of their system and going over into the Cattaraugus or going over into the Ohio system. But I what I think they did overall was just reduce the survival rate across the board in the lake because Pennsylvania stocks the most fish. We we stock over a million, Ohio does around four hundred thousand and I can't remember what New York is. Don't don't hold me to the exact numbers, but it's like four hundred thousand. So, you know, we're doing almost three times the fish with only sixty miles of, of shoreline. And, uh, you know, when we tinker with that stuff, uh, we can actually mess it up. And, you know, just trying to keep all the fish for ourselves, it, it's kind of stupid because, one, fishermen don't know state lines. We really don't. We go to where the fishing is, and the fish definitely don't know state lines. And, uh, you know, let nature do what nature does best and, and feed that. So, you know, now this year looks to be like we're going to get really big returns so then the question would be you know 150 million walleye in the lake and we're getting these really big returns which would point to me to say it's not predation because if it was they've got the worst chance of surviving that they've ever had with all the walleye why are we getting really big returns and what did you change? Or if they didn't change anything, then what went on in the lake? You know, how do we determine that? Now, I'm going to say something in defense of our Pennsylvania Fish, uh, Fish and Boat Commission. I wouldn't want their job because I, I do think they don't have the resources. I mean, they try that all the time but I I think it's a tough job to figure it out with the resources that they have. And unlike other States, um, <clears throat> there's no state money that comes from everything comes from licenses and a few other things that they do. I wish the state of Pennsylvania would, would actually fund some of this and we would have, um, you know, just better output.
0: Yeah. I- I- interesting. Yeah. It's always, I don't know. It's, um, I think, uh, I think fishing game everywhere, even if they're better funded than maybe they are in Pennsylvania, always have a challenge.
1: Always, and somebody's always not happy. And I've said this to a lot of my friends. We we have a tendency to bitch about things. And what I say to them every, it's easy to bitch. It's really hard to come up with a solution. And so there's a time for you to quit bitching and start helping. And so that's what I'm trying to do now. You know is look at it and say you know how can it help
0: yeah it's interesting you say that because my tactic with the complainers is to always offer them a seat on whatever board or committee i'm involved with and it usually takes <laughs> care of the problem
1: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: it's uh so. it's pretty much a cure-all for complaining
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, there's, a, there's a lot of people that care out there and you know they're doing they're doing good things i mean the fish commission is is trying, um, you know, they're trying to give us more access. Uh, you know, Ohio's got a better system. It's, it's funded by local government and by state government. They've got tremendous public access. Uh, I mean, place I fish on the Grand, they've got a bathroom that's cleaned twice a day. They've got pavilions to sit down and change your waders. It's, uh, just beautiful and lots of, uh, you know, stream access. And, um, you know, the, the question is, where's Pennsylvania? Where, so our, you know, state park system and the, uh, NR or whatever they call it, um, needs to kind of wake up to Erie County and look at the amount of tourism that's coming in there and say, well, how can we help? Because, there's a lot of people coming up there to fish.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And talking about the fishing, you know, one of the things I remember uh, when we first met and we were fishing Cataragus Creek was I was really struck with the simplicity of your gear and your flies. And I, I was wondering if you could share kind of your, your setup and your fly box uh, with folks.
1: Sure. So, you know, as we all go through the path of fishing and you're learning, you always have the fear of never having the right fly. So when you really don't know what flies are going to happen or you need at any time, you end up carrying almost everything you own. And, uh, you know, so, uh, I remember carrying green, great uh, dry flies in August, uh, encountering a trico hatch because I just didn't know any better. Okay, but I had them with me just in case I needed them. Uh, that's how much of a neophyte I was. And as I learned, it's like, well, wait a minute, green drakes aren't going to come off until next June. I don't need that box. Oh, I don't need this box. I don't need that box. And you, it's kind of like a teardrop, right? That you're you're real wide at the bottom, and then you start to turn and come into the point. And once you acquire a lot of experience in fly fishing, you pretty much can predict most of what you will need in, in every fishery or with a little bit of investigation, you can come up with it pretty quick. And what I have found in steelhead fishing, and I'm going to say something that I've tried almost everything there is tried. you know, someone will come out with a new fly pattern and whatever. And, you know, there's, there's a bunch of books written on steelhead fishing and, uh, <clears throat> you know, they've got 450 fly patterns and so on and so forth. And I don't want to be negative to anybody, but most of the reason they do that is that they didn't put the fly patterns in there. They would have a pamphlet because you can't just write that much about what it takes to steelhead fish. And I fish basically with a lanyard. Okay, let me back up. So you you need your rod, you need your reel, you need your line and what you wear. Okay. And then from there, you need a leader you need an indicator if you're chucking and ducking and you need some split shot and you need your flies and you're pretty much set to go. So I back myself up in my little pouch and my zipper on my waders with an extra indicator, an extra leader, ex- extra split shot. And, um, you know, one of everything that I might need inside of that little pouch. And I tuck that away and then I wear a lanyard. And I started wearing a lanyard in Montana because you boat fish uh you know, like on the Bighorn River, and you don't you're not very far away from your boat, so you leave your all your stuff in the boat and you take a little thing applied and, and tip it and you go fish. So, you know, adopting that, coming back here, I wear a lanyard. I've got three what I call quick shots. Um they're sold by frog here. What they really are are the little things that um, ear, or, you know, your your earplugs come in when you're at shooting range. You know what I'm talking about? They look like a change purse. Yep. And I throw three sizes of split shot into that because I find, and by the way, I want to throw something up. I fish winged lead split shot. And uh, I know that's controversial in two ways. I've had people tell me, well, winged, split shot hang up on the bottom more and I would say that's a figment of your imagination and you know we would scientifically go to the river and prove it by just bring up two rods and start fishing and see who hangs up and the purpose of wing split shot is to quickly remove or add weight as you encounter different fishing situations as you're moving up or down the system so B, BB, and 3 ot seems to get it done for me almost anywhere I fish in Steelhead Alley. Now, uh, so I have three of those. I've got two fly boxes. I, I use the Orbis or morell foam fly boxes, and I burn a little hole with a coat hanger in the corner of it, and I put an old piece of fly line and put a loop on it, and hang them off from my lanyard. Cause, cause time of getting in and out of stuff is, is what causes you to catch more fish. The more your lines in the water, the more you catch fish. So I put them on the lanyard. It's real easy. And my tippet material on the, on the tippet dispenser. And I carry, I carry 4X. I seldom use it. It's mostly three and sometimes two. 2x and, you know, really high, but um, not blown out water. You know, I'll divert for a second. The mistake that a lot of people make in reading the gauges on the internet is that the gauge most of the time is not telling you turbidity. So you can have a high water event normally later in the season after the depends on how much rain you get and it flushes you know all the dirt and stuff off the fields and whatever and then your high water event later in the year can be epic fishing because one the you know the fish feel more secure they're laying out stuff's coming by them faster they going to react quicker and it's a, you know they can't eat it if they can't see it. so they uh don't go on those days because they believe that it's blown out. Unfortunately, there's no way to actually know unless you go. And um, I've just made the decision that I'm going to go on the day that I think historically has taught me to go. And I've picked some days where nobody on the river, tons of fish. I mean, I, I think I mentioned we fished two weeks ago before I went to Montana um, I fished about four hours, had 20 hookups, maybe caught, I don't know, 12 if I was lucky. Land, you know, landed about half. And a really nice fish, you know, 26 to 29 inches. And uh, nobody there because they just aren't, you know, reading it correctly. Anyway, I, I got off in a tangent, but uh, that's kind of how I view it.
0: Yeah, and so you've got the lanyard, and then, you know, you're only fishing two or three patterns, right?
1: So I fish mostly, th- okay, let, let me back up. If, if fish have low water conditions, that's a whole different game. When it's low, there's been lots of fishermen, <clears throat> they're bombing them with every bright colored thing. You need to go to a dark color. So you need to go to, to some nymphs, you know, small stone flies the hair's ears, stuff like that you'll catch fish on that stuff and you know carl wexelman a well-known guide up here uh he does his dry dropper in those conditions very successfully and uh you know occasionally he'll catch one on the dry fly i just don't go fishing in those conditions because i don't have to okay uh I, I just wait until we get our first rain and then i go so once you have good flows, I mean, I'm fishing blood dots, which is the pattern, you know, that imitates an egg. And uh, I will fish that uh, the, the albumin or the major portion of the fly is tied with egg blood bug material. And then I change the color of the dot just to shake it up a little bit with four colors. So I have Charisse, Golden Nugget apricot supreme which matches the um yoke exactly when it's wet and then charise chartreuse and golden Nugget. so uh, those are the four colors and then <clears throat> i fish um an abbreviated white zonker pattern that was codenamed by my eight-year-old son white death way back when he, he did a lot of fishing with me and it's called the white death white zonker and all it is is an abbreviation of the way it's tied so it's uh, kind of sparse it's uh, uh an inch and three quarters long no weight on it and um blackhead uh, orange um, tie-in at the at the bend of the hook and that's the pattern. It's, Now my patterns I tie for speed because if you're not losing, you know, a dozen to three dozen flies on an outing, you know, a good long eight hour outing, you're not really fishing. That's, that's, you're either being too timid or you're not getting on the bottom. You know, you're, you're not hooking up fish because you're not doing that. Therefore you're not breaking any off and you're just not consuming the flies. So, you know, I want to be able to tie them, you know, Quickly, and I'll say this: I use Danville flat waxed 210 denier thread because it also makes the fly much more durable. And therefore, if you have to use your force to get the fly out of the fish, you're not tearing it up, and you know it just works better.
0: Yeah, got it. And then, in terms, do you generally fish a floating line? You're probably fishing what something between a six and an eight weight, right?
1: Yeah, so I, I've always fished an eight weight. Now the reason is, um, you know, a seven weight to me is a tweener. A um, lot of guys love them, and I don't don't want to step on their thinking. Uh, and when you're trying to, you know, when you first get into the sport, okay, you, you go buy a fly rod. You go buy, let's say, a five weight. And back in my day, three hundred bucks was a big deal. So you buy a three hundred dollar fly rod and you're kind of afraid to tell your new wife that you spent $300 on a fly rod right and then you uh decide to go steelhead fishing you realize that man that five weight just is being like (laughs) not gonna isn't gonna work and I need a bigger rod now I gotta go not buy another rod and you know it gets to the point where what do I buy so I looked at it then from the perspective and fortunately I was able to do quite a bit of traveling what, what else am I going to maybe fish for that I need a bigger rod and I'm looking at bonefish and I'm looking at permit so if I buy a 7 weight to fish steelhead and permit because a lot of guys fish 7 weights for, 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 for a bonefish but I get a you know 30 plus inch permit on there um, I just think you're less of an advantage than an eight weight. There's a little more to it, okay? So I decided to go with eight weights. What I find with the eight weight, and, and there's not that much difference between the two rods. I mean, there is a difference, but not that much. And what, what I most, mostly found was, you know in wind, I can cast an eight weight better into the wind. I can throw more weight easily, with that rod and there's just a little more i don't know what the word would be tenacity in the fighting capability of the rod on on fish so um you know as you gain skill those who have skill overcome deficiencies with their skill they adjust their casting stroke or you know put a little more oomph into it or whatever but over a lot of time, you know, it kind of wears you out. Uh, but for the intermediate, um, you know, they're sometimes at a disadvantage when if they had an eight weight, they would be fishing much better than using a six weight as an example. And um, so that's what I do. Now, a lot of my friends are seven weights. And we talk about it all the time, you know, and then when they break one off, I laugh at them and, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know.
0: folks i hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with jeff stay tuned for part two where we pick up where we left off and talk about steelhead tactics and jeff's time in the fly fishing industry and remember folks if you like the podcast please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice tight lines everybody